0: So I want to welcome to the channel today a guest that I've been very interested to interview. This gentleman has probably interviewed and had conversations with more spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders, certainly than anyone I know of, and I would venture to say quite possibly more than anyone alive today. I don't know for sure, but he's interviewed hundreds and hundreds of spiritual teachers and and leaders uh, and, and healers and guides and so forth over the years. Uh, he has a, um, a YouTube channel and a podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump, uh, if you're interested, if you haven't heard of him. Probably 90% of people watching this have, uh, but if you haven't, check out his material. He has incredible interviews with many, many, many spiritual teachers. His name's Rick Archer, and I'd like to say hi and welcome to the channel. Hey,
1: thanks. I uh, appreciate it. And I just give a shout out to people like Ian McNay and Jeffrey Mishlove, and mm-hmm. and there's others who have been doing spiritual Type interviews for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and I, I appreciate them too,
0: absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah is so, the conscious t v guy
0: yeah, 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 and they do have really good material as well, yeah, that's they true, do. yeah, uh so yeah, I guess I would just uh when i when I offered the interview my my thought would be I would be curious to hear about some of your spiritual history, what made you become interested in spirituality on a, on a personal level, and then leading into how you how you started doing the interviews and so forth. Um, and then maybe we'll talk about how uh, some of the, the, what you've learned interacting with all of these teachers and some patterns you've noticed and uh, maybe the overall evolution of spirituality and, and so forth. So I guess, first of all, I'm just kind of curious, how did you get interested in spirit, spirituality, religion, etc.?
1: Well, I certainly wasn't interested in religion when I was a kid. My my parents dragged me to church on Sunday because they thought it would be good for my character or something, and it always ruined a perfectly good Sunday. <laughs> usually kicked and screamed and didn't want to go. I had a few, as most people did, thoughtful moments when I was young, you know, staring at the stars or something like that and wondering what was out there. I, I loved to... Uh, we lived in Connecticut. We'd go into the... New York City on my birthday and go to the Hayden Planetarium and I'd, you know, think bigger thoughts. But I, I didn't have really a, an inkling of what spirituality might be. Never gave it a thought. Then um, in the 1967, which was the summer of love, everybody's starting to take drugs. I got interested in that. And in preparation for doing LSD the first time, my some friends and I were reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I can remember specifically where I was. It was was actually um, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert's uh, rendition of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I I was driving the car, had three friends in the car, and I was going down the post road in Westport, Connecticut. Ironically, I was right in front of the church my parents used to drag me to when I was a kid. When they, they they were reading the book, someone in the back seat, and they mentioned the word enlightenment. And somehow a little light went off in my head. I thought, enlightenment, okay, that sounds like... Something important that might, might be what you're supposed to do in life. So then we went on and, you know, took LSD and all. I was a mixed up, crazy, confused kid, but it dawned upon me, it made it obvious to me that there is a whole lot more to life than ordinarily meets the eye. And, you know, I had just assumed that everybody pretty much saw the world way I saw it. And it's all the same thing. And, you know, I remember going into a donut shop um, the morning. We were up all night, you know, tripping. Went in there and looking at the ladies selling donuts and thinking, oh my God, you know, they, they're seeing this particular situation so differently than I am right now. My thoughts weren't as coherent as they are right now, but it just hit me that what's important is to change the way you see the world rather than the world itself although that has its value but as gandhi or someone said it's it's easier to wear shoes than to pave the earth with leather i couldn't forget the idea of higher states of consciousness enlightenment and and the whole the whole deal but then for the ensuing year i continued to take drugs and dropped out of high school and hitchhiked to california and you know did all kinds of crazy things and by the end of that year i was i was pretty messed up i'd gotten arrested a couple times spent a few nights in jail and one night i was taking some hallucinogen for the umpteenth time and uh, i was sitting there in my bedroom in the basement of my father's home reading a zen book to just sort of clear you know stabilize my mind or something zen flesh zen bones it was and um and it dawned upon me. I th- "I thought, okay, now these guys are really serious, and I'm just screwing around. And if I keep screwing around like this, I'm going to live a miserable life. I mean, I'm being a hypocrite. This is this is not enlightenment what I'm doing here. And so I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to stop taking drugs. I'm going to learn to meditate. And at the time, it, transcendental meditation was available. I had heard about it, and I'll see what happens. And I should add that." I had a, a bit of a difficult childhood. My father was an alcoholic, you know, PTSD from World War II. He was a professional artist, a sensitive man, but very messed up by the war. He verbally abused my mother f- throughout my childhood. She ended up trying to commit suicide three times and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals during most of my adolescence. So, I, and that, you know, consequently, I was a bit traumatized myself. Um, <clears throat> so in any case, I... Learned to meditate a few weeks later, a couple weeks later. And there's a whole story about that in terms of walking across Westchester County and in order to get home to get some money from my father so I could learn to meditate.
0: Was this around the time that the Beatles had gotten involved with TM and went and met Maharishi? Yeah, and, okay. yeah they
1: had gone, I believe, in February of 68 or something to Rishikesh. And so that's how I heard about it. And then this was like July of 68 that I finally... That I went in to learn, and I wouldn't have heard about it if not for the Beatles. So, in any case, when I learned, it was like kaboom right off the bat. I just sank into a deep transcendent state and felt such such a soothing, blissful influence. And I remember walking down Fifth Avenue afterwards from the the, the center there in New York, and It was a big thunderstorm, and I was just getting drenched to the skin, but I didn't care. People were huddling under awnings looking at me like I was crazy, but I just felt like a ton had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt such relief. So I kept meditating. Sometimes I say OCD can be your friend because I actually haven't missed a twice-daily meditation in 54 years. Awesome. Since the day I learned.
0: Under all kinds of circumstances.
1: Yeah, it's just like I I made a resolve. And it's funny because when I started, all my friends, knowing how what a flake I was, said, oh, yeah, this is your latest thing. You'll be doing something else in two weeks. But I just started experiencing such benefits that I stuck with it. And I went on to become a teacher and taught a lot of people and lectured and traveled all over the world and did all kinds of fun things.
0: I learned TM as well. I think think we talked about this in in the interview with me that – when I, I learned TM from an old hippie guy who learned it, he knew Maharishi. I don't know if he learned it from him or learned it from someone else, but I had, the same, I had a similar experience in that. With the first time I meditated, did, my, my, my brain was revved up. But I think within a week, I, I did it every day, just like they said. And within a week, I dropped in just like that. And I first time I felt, I felt like it was the first time I felt peace in my life that I remembered. Yeah.
1: Do you remember the hippie guy's name?
0: He went by this name Rack, but it was Robert Allen Craigle. He's a Boulderite. He grew up in the South Side of Chicago, and he he talked a lot about that. But uh...
1: I don't remember I became a teacher at SS Park and um, gave one of my first lectures in Boulder, or Denver. We, we went out during the course and gave some sample lectures for practice. You know, then came back and told Marashi how it went and everything. And I remember I'd gone in. I forget whether it was I think might have been Denver. I, we were in some high school giving a lecture, and I was walking down the hall, and I saw looked in the window of a room and it had like words like moksha and things like that on the blackboard so I actually just poked my head in and said hi we're meditation teachers I noticed you had these things written on the backboard and there's a whole classroom full of kids and they invited us in I gave a whole talk to that class as well I went back and reported it to Marshi in the evening yeah so I had a lot of fun with that I'm, I'm no longer officially in the TM movement but I have no problems with it in a way became too independent in my thinking really to fit comfortably in the confines of any particular organization, but I credit that whole thing for having literally saved my life because at the rate I was going, I was starting to use hard drugs actually before before this, heroin a few times and stuff. I don't think I would have lasted that long. During all these decades of meditation, there have been times, several years if you add it all up, where I was on six-month retreats and things like that and just went really deep into it.
0: How did you find the retreats? How was it?
1: Sometimes very nice and deep and clear experiences. Sometimes you get a little loopy if you're doing that much meditation. And you, know, you get sort of eccentric. Like one time I just got obsessed with fasting because we were doing some experimentation with things like that. But I took it to extremes. I tend to be a little obsessive and to take things to extremes. You know, so I got kind of out of balance and it took me a long time to get back in balance. We had this thing where on these retreats, you would gr- kind of gradually increase the amount of meditation until you're meditating mo- most of the day. And then a month or two before the course was to end, you start gradually decreasing. So you just come down gently and integrate as you get back into activity. And um, I remember one time I was doing this uh, independent thing in a cabin in North Carolina with three friends because we weren't, we weren't going to be able to go to the regular course because we are going to be teaching a course up in Maine. And for some reason, we had to leave this cabin kind of abruptly. So it kind of crashed down in terms of going from 10 hours of meditation a day to just the normal morning and evening. And it took me months to get stabilized. It was... It was almost like there was an old Star Trek episode where Scotty was beaming Captain Kirk up or something and the beamer was broken. And so he kind of got half beamed and he was sort of neither here nor there. you know, (laughs) And he couldn't quite be in his body, but he wasn't down where he had been. And that's kind of how I felt for a few months until I got stabilized.
0: Yeah. Sustained meditation is no joke. I mean... Yeah, I remember, uh, let's see, the first time I did a a week-long Sashin and Zen, several things, but but leaving the retreat was just a trip in so many ways. One of them was as I drove my car out of the parking lot, I got about a block before I was convinced I had a flat tire because everything was vibrating so much. And then I realized everything was really loud, and the cars were moving so fast, and everything was so bright. And I'm like, wow, have I been living my whole life and not actually sensing things this clearly, even though it's obvious, you know? And, And I realized, wow. I got out of the car to see, does it have a flat tire? And it didn't. And I realized, does it always vibrate this much? <laughs> Everything was so intense and so bright. It really does change your perspective significantly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's a kind of an interesting point that we can get into more. Somebody asked Maharishi one time, couldn't you just enlighten us? Do we have to do all these courses and all this stuff? And he said, if I could, you wouldn't want it. He, he said it would take t- 10 strong men to hold you down. Um so in other words, what we're talking about here is a huge shift in one's perspective and orientation to life. And that shift, I think, has to take place somewhat gradually and incrementally with stabilization and integration at every step of the way, Because if we want to live it, which I presume we do as a human being, we, unless we want to just sort of be drooling in a cave or something we we need to integrate and stabilize it so you can drive a car and or fly a plane if that happens to be or commit or do brain surgery if that's your profession or whatever you know Uh, but in in integrating it properly i would say then what this development of inner potential makes you much better at most things so it enhances your life but it has to be developed responsibly
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely that reminds me of there was another t m teacher in Boulder many many years ago named Larry Cutt uh, who um used that uh, used a similar analogy, and he said, when the mind calms when the thoughts when there 's fewer thoughts and fewer you know distractions of the mind and so forth he said it's something it's your mind becomes more like a precise instrument it 's uh something like a a bright diamond with a black background, and that 's what I find not that I think i 'm like smarter more intelligent or anything like that. What I find is that it's kind of like the background noise is, is gone, you know, and there, it makes things so much simpler. And I think it is more precise. It requires less effort. There's less distraction. There's less struggle with, the, with yourself about what you should be doing or, and so forth. And uh,
1: Yeah, there's a line in the Gita which goes, yoga is skill in action. Of course, the Gita was a teaching where some guy had to fight a battle and he was being given a teaching that would actually enable him to do that more successfully. And there have been all kinds of studies on this too. It definitely makes the mind sharper and improves memory and learning ability and all kinds of capabilities are enhanced. And you've probably heard the the notion that we only use a small percentage of our full potential. We have you know, a vast, untapped reservoir of energy, intelligence, creativity and so on that most of us don't even realize is there, much less developed. Meditation can be a means of tapping into that and unfolding
0: it and utilizing it in daily life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, did you end up involved in in other groups or other Buddhist groups or other types of, or have you kind of done it on your own most of this time?
1: Um, pretty much on my own. Uh, Around 20, 1999, Irene and I went and saw Ama, the hugging saint, and we just really enjoyed the experience. So up until the pandemic started, pretty much, we were doing that once or twice a year, just for a few days. That was nice. If that were my only spiritual practice, going to see her once a year, that wouldn't have sufficed. But it was a nice little engine on, on the train, in addition to the But, you know, just my regular daily practice, couple hours of meditation a day. I do some yoga asanas, but I've never really been deeply involved in any other group.
0: I'm curious about Amma. I actually don't know much about her. Could you describe a little bit about what it's like to go see her or go on to a retreat with her?
1: Yeah, she's pretty remarkable, actually. You know, you hear about it, oh she hugs people. It sounds sort of touchy feely and new agey or something. But she really is a, a remarkable being, which I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of somebody who radiates a lot of Shakti, a lot of spiritual energy. But if you meet such a person, you you feel like your whole consciousness shifts just by being in their proximity. And <clears throat> She kind of creates, this, or, creates or, or catalyzes this shift in the atmosphere of the entire group, which becomes more and more profound over a period of several days. And you can feel it even like, I remember last time I went to her facility in Chicago one summer and just driving onto the, the campus of it, it, was a, it used to be a college that, that her organization bought. I could, boom, I could feel the influence. And I'm not a real sensitive person. I'm not the type that picks up on all that kind of stuff too much. But basically, you are there and there's this whole thing and people are singing bhajans and, you know, it's a nice atmosphere. and. At some point you go up for your darshan and you get in a queue and you you come up and, and then you have this thing, might only last 30 seconds or a minute or so, where she takes you in her arms and whispers something in your ear, just some little, my darling, my darling, my darling, something like that. And maybe looks at you, gives you a Hershey's kiss, some little thing and sends you away. And you just feel really zapped. I mean, I've seen big, strong, grown men just burst into tears from the experience. And then you sit there, and you watch her do it for 12 hours straight or all night long or something, without even getting off the couch um, to pee or anything. And each person, I mean, she's greeting each person as they come up with the same enthusiasm and love and patience and, and everything else and humor or whatever the person needs as the first one. And she just doesn't run out of steam. And she's also very, uh, she tunes into you and, and sometimes knows things about you that, You haven't told anybody, but she tunes in and then says something that is spot on in terms of what you need to hear. And I'm not imagining that. I can speak from experience. And she's also very malleable in the sense that, you know, I remember I was sitting there one time and some girl came up and said, you know, my husband beats me. And and almost had tears running down her cheeks. And then... Next person that came up, something funny happened, and she was laughing uproariously. So she is immediately adaptable to each person's circumstance.
0: Man, that is so powerful.
1: And then on top of that, there's this huge humanitarian thing going on in India, especially with providing pensions to widows so they don't end up on the street and building houses for tsunami victims. She just, under her auspices, the largest private hospital in Asia was just built in, in the suburbs of New Delhi. Huge place with all the latest modern stuff and dozens, a big long list as long as your arm of of things like that that are going on. So it's impressive. And this is a woman with a fourth grade education. Wow.
0: I want to reflect on two aspects of spirituality you just pointed out that are so easily overlooked. You can almost say like the masculine aspect of spirituality about insight and doctrine and these practices and things like that. And, you know, it's not just masculine, but... The feminine aspect of enlightenment is so powerful, and it's such a powerful transmission. But often it's something you have to be in the presence of. You, you feel it directly. And I felt it, and I've been around people who transmit that. One, interestingly, is Lisa Carnes, actually. She's she's one way you see online, and she has a certain style of teaching. When you're around her physically, just in the room, you feel it. It's different. It's very powerful. Shanti for sure. Shanti is mm-hmm. one of the others, and, and Gangaji. Those are the people I've met that you can feel their energetic influence on the entire environment. You just can't, you just can't ignore, you know, if you're sensitive, you, you feel it. And, um, the other aspect is in my opinion, where the rubber meets the road in many ways is meta compassionate action. Like what, what are you actually doing in the world? You know, it's one thing to be enlightened. It's one thing to have the insights. It's one thing to go beyond the, the illusion of separation, the illusion of self even, it's another thing to turn the wheel of the dharma in, in a practical way in the world as a living being around the physical suffering of other of other living beings and to, to be willing to just do something there,
1: uh, do yeah. something
0: compassionate.
1: I agree, and we can talk more about this. I don't know if we want to go into that right now, but um, we can. But I, I think that's a, a very important component, and it's sort of a proof of the pudding kind of a thing. You know, I mean, I've heard people actually argue that you can be an enlightened schmuck. Not by my definition of enlightenment. If I'm going to use that word, it would have to be for a holistic development in which all the faculties, including the heart and compassion and all those things, are, are fully developed. Otherwise, you're lopsided. As Ken Wilber, your neighbor in Boulder, you know, speaks of lines of development. You can, in his opinion, you can become quite advanced along certain lines, but really stunted in some of the other lines. I would not consider that enlightenment, or even that big a deal. It's, it's I, I'd rather see someone who's compassionate and kind and generous and loving who doesn't claim any sort of awakening than someone who claims to be awakened and is seducing his students and ripping them off financially or that kind of things.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. The beauty of this whole deal is you can't ignore the relative. And what's interesting is uh, uh, somebody who maybe even has had some sort of awakening or has some true insight but is certainly not liberated, not what I would call enlightened, often they don't notice their own fixations as much as the people around them or their students even, you know. Uh, And I won't name names, but, you know, often it's the students who call out the teacher at some point and say, you need to keep working on something. And the relative litmus test is simple. Like, just spend some time around that person. You'll know. Are they kind? Are they generous? Are they they self-oriented or other-oriented? Do they feel relaxed to you? Do they feel equanimous? It's not that hard to figure out for anyone, really, if you spend some time around somebody. Um, you, yeah. should, you should be able to pick that up.
1: There's this thing, that, this organization that I helped to found three four years ago called the, the Association for Spiritual Integrity. It started over a luncheon meeting that we had at the Science and Non-Duality Conference after I had given a talk on the ethics of enlightenment. I sat down with Jack O'Keefe and Craig Holliday and John Prendergast, and, and we just started chatting and, and decided to create an organization to try to popularize a standard or a code of ethics that spiritual teachers could reasonably be expected to measure up to. There have been so many examples where teachers are getting more and more off the rails and students are sitting there and they're thinking, well, this is getting kind of weird, but this guy is supposed to be enlightened and, and I'm not, so what do I know? So I'll, maybe it's crazy wisdom, I'll just go along with it. And uh, you know, I just
0: think that's created so much harm. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate, and it's unnecessary now, like we do, because there are very good, authentic teachers. I'm interested in, you know, you've been doing these interviews and conversations with spiritual teachers for, what, how many years? Oh, about 13 or so, since I, I did the first one in the fall of 2009.
1: Yeah. And I started putting them online um, in January or February of uh,
0: 2010. Okay. So I think I just have a kind of a grab bag of different sorts of questions that I am that I'm genuinely curious about, and I'm sure a lot of people are. And maybe I'll just toss them out and see see what comes. So one thing I'm curious about is having interviewed hundreds of people, do you notice any specific trends in not necessarily trends, but uh let's say practices that stick out as far as uh, what you feel uh, at the gut level are, are valuable spiritual practices. We already talked about meditation, obviously, but does something stick out as far as even maybe even a certain approach based on a Buddhist approach or an Advaita Vedanta approach or something? But I'm curious what your gut instinct is on that. Well,
1: I saw this little card the other day. It was almost like a bookmark, but it was more rectangular. But it, it had 10 quotes from Ramana Maharshi, and the first quote was, the best practice for somebody to do is the one that they can do most easily. And I've heard variations on that, that such as, like, the best practice for you to do is the one that you're actually going to (laughs) do on a regular basis. Definitely I'm not a one-size-fits-all kind of guy. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to do this show if I were. And I've seen so many different people benefit from so many different approaches. And, And, you know, some of the great traditions are tailored that way. I mean, you look at Hinduism, and there's bhakti, and there's jnana, and there's raja yoga, and karma yoga, and there's all kinds of different approaches according to, uh, to, to suit people's temperament, because people are different. And I think some people are just not suited to sit down, close their eyes, and do a silent meditation practice. It just doesn't go easily for them. They might need some you know, more active thing. And others are more devotionally oriented, and you know, and, uh, you know more heart oriented. And the heart may be their path. Others are more intellectual. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, yeah, that does actually, and I, I think it really resonates with my experience as well. The other question that's somewhat related to this is: Do you find, or have you found any practices, uh, approaches, techniques, things like that, that could be detrimental, or that you would you would give people cautions before they use or, or investigate?
1: yeah two things come to mind and there may be others the first is plant medicines and ayahuasca and you know psychedelics and all that which i readily acknowledge have been of tremendous value for people when used in a, an extremely responsible way and there's great research taking place at johns hopkins and nyu and other places showing great benefit for people with PTSD and alcoholism and terminal cancer patients who are afraid of death and then are no longer afraid once they have this deep mystic mystical experience. So there's great potential there. But as we saw in the 60s, if it's used just kind of as a party thing or used you know, recreationally, people can get into trouble. And I also think that if a person thinks that they're going to be able to do these things every weekend or whatever, and after X amount of time, arrive at some abiding liberated state i'm very skeptical of that i haven't seen it i think the greatest value of it perhaps is as, as an eye-opener as it was for me but after that you have to re- do something different probably or as um who was it oh some well-known teacher uh, he said when, when you get the message hang up the phone
0: it might have been ram das was that ram das no it was that other
1: no. guy um Ram Dass has a lot of great quotes, too, like, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a weekend with your parents.
0: Yeah, it's a great one. (laughs) It's absolutely true. (laughs) So there's that. I also
1: think the whole Neo-Advaita thing has been problematic for some people. I had a whole interview about this with a woman named Jessica Eve four or five months ago. She had dove deep into that world and really felt that it discombobulated her, that she became very... um, Disintegrated and was getting out of touch with their humanity. You know, I think that there too, the teachings that those people offer can be valuable to a certain niche, to a certain, you know, segment of the spectrum of spiritual seekers, but they're not for everybody. And as Jessica and I discussed, um, you know, she. has been in touch with people who became nihilistic, suicidal, lost interest in their job and children and family because the world is an illusion and there is no self and yada yada. And that was drilled in to the point where they just became kind of flat and um, non-feeling. No one's here to defend that perspective right now, so I'm just expressing my impression of it, but um, I have seen harm from it, I think, and Jessica, who's much more focused on it, has become a Hearing uh ground or whatever you would call it for people who are having these kinds of problems, they're getting in touch with her, and she's in dialogue with a lot of people and building up her website and but it, it's really been a problem and then uh, so okay, so harm and and then the the whole thing about ethics, there have been so many situations where teachers have behaved unethically and have really harmed people. It might just be disillusionment or it might be financial disaster. I I know of one teacher that has kind of impressive, and and people say that in his presence you feel something the way you were just describing. But if he finds out that a student of his has an inheritance, for instance, this happened recently, an inheritance of $900,000, he said, oh, you should have told me because that money has a Zurich energies attached to it and I can purify it for you and it's going to do you great harm unless you sign it over to me and and the guy actually signed it over to him but then since and then Len regretted it um, so there are teachers who I don't know if they're oblivious to what they're doing or are actually just such scoundrels that they know what they're doing and are intentionally ripping people off um, but there have been things like that and then of course the sexual scandals and ah, so you know, the whole spiritual field is a bit of a minefield, and that's part of the reason why we established the ASI, uh, just to try to contribute in some way to making it safer and more wholesome. For Because this is the most precious thing in life, and nothing could be more precious. It, and if it's misrepresented or abused in some way, it's such a crime. And um, I just feel very strongly about that.
0: I'm with you there. One of the major impetus I had to write the book I wrote was this, and you probably noticed I have a whole like kind of chapter on teachers and not to, I really tried to be specific about what to look for because some people don't fall prey to things like that as quite as easily. I mean, anyone can fall prey in the right sort of circumstances to a sociopath or, you know, whatever. I mean, anyone can be fooled, but I've met many who genuinely want to live out of their heart. They're interested in deepening their insight as well, but they do fall for the validation games that some people can play and the, you know, the the culty behavior, the love bombing, all that kind of stuff. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, it's why take advantage of somebody who's trying to orient to the best part of themselves. It's really tragic in a sense, you know?
1: Yeah. It's such a violation of trust. I mean, it's, you know, similar to what happened in the Catholic Church with all the priests abusing the boys and, and all that stuff. It's, you, know, you come to this thing wanting to get in touch with God, and then someone who claims to be representing God or in in our world representing higher consciousness or something does that sort of thing. And it's not like the, you're a doctor. I mean, you have to pass certain tests to become a doctor, and you you could lose your license if you violate certain ethical standards and so on or malpractice kind of things but in the spiritual field it's kind of a the wild west in a way there's really no formalized training for most teachers and people are more or less (laughs) self-certified as spiritually they just get up and start teaching and uh and so the checks and balances are not there there's no organization which has authority over them and i'm not implying that the association for spiritual integrity wants to have authority it's not within our Purview to do that. But it really kind of is incumbent upon the students, I think, to exercise and develop their own discernment and discrimination and cut and run if something seems to be seriously off.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally with you there. So you have interviewed uh, how many? 600? I'm up to
1: 670 or something like that.
0: Yeah. Can you? Just off, I guess, off the top of your head or just kind of shooting from the hip, can you kind of name a few teachers you think really stick out as far as qualities that make a good spiritual teacher or transmitter or facilitator of this whole process?
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of some of the well-known ones, um, I like Adyashanti a lot. I've interviewed him quite a few times and, you know, been to his house a few times, spent the night there, gotten to know him personally, and I just think he is top-notch guy, very nice blend of high and grounded at the same time <laughs> he's got something great depth and also great humanity and integration uh, i like Sar- swami sarva priyananda a lot he's um, the head of the um, new york center of the vedanta society i actually take classes with him regularly on the gita and the upanishads online and um, he, i think he's just a really genuine article and there are so many more. I mean, I don't want to when – I, when, I, when I'm asked to answer this question, I'm obviously leaving out tons of people. These are just some people that I've sort of been more involved with. I should probably pull up my website and start scanning down the list. But <laughs>
0: it's, a, it's a bit of an unfair question because obviously out of hundreds and hundreds, you're not going to have readily yeah. available access to everyone in your mind. One but... thing I
1: can say about that, though, is that one of the perks of doing this is that I've made so many wonderful friends around the world whom I never would have met. Just I've met these amazing people and formed deep, lasting friendships. And uh, it's been incredibly beneficial to me. Each interview is incredibly beneficial. I mean, I just feel really energized and enlivened by the process of preparing for and actually doing the interviews. But then it's, you know just um, not, found this beautiful network of friends. I have f- long files of people who said, if you're ever in my area, you've got to come and, and visit. And they're in every continent of the world except Antarctica.
0: <laughs> so I have another question associated with that. I probably should have asked them in reversed order. but So this question is not specific to any certain teacher, but what do you think makes a, a spiritual teacher a good teacher? What qualities... Uh, whether the personal qualities or approaches, what do you see in teachers that you go, wow, that, that's, a, that's a powerful resource for people who are interested in spirituality?
1: Okay, and so when you ask almost any question, or anybody does, I usually just lead with what comes to mind as you're asking it. So what came to mind as you are asking that is integrity and also just, you know, what you see is what you get, not trying to portray themselves as something which they're not, not putting on airs, or lording it over people, but just a straight shooter. And very often, some of these people at least, they readily admit that they are a work in progress. And I personally feel that everybody is. In fact, St. Teresa of Avila said it it appears that the Lord himself is on the journey. So if if he is, then I think the rest of us are. And many of them, like they'll do a retreat with other teachers or, or go and have therapy once in a while, just to sort of make sure things are copacetic. They don't try to portray an image of perfection or being finished. And, you know, we're all in this together. And if they have a group of students, it's more like, OK, I'm sort of the centerpiece of this group, but we're all on the path together and we're, we're helping each other. As opposed to a hierarchical thing where I'm up on the dais and you will, you peons are down there. Yeah, I'm with you
0: yeah. as you were speaking. And, and I completely agree with that. I would say even in, in sort of deeper stages of realization, there can still be an air of specialness. And you may not even see it, you may, but you may feel it about yourself, and that's going to transmit to everyone around you. That can even drop out. And I'm reminded of the eighth ox picture where it says, is this a regular person or is this a Buddha? Demons and saints can do nothing. Even Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can't tell. So there should be, and it could be, absolute ordinariness. Why not? With any insight, with any stage of realization or any of that, there's nothing that, that implores you to negate anything that's human. In fact, if anything, you feel more comfortable as a human being in the relative sense. You kind of get that with the Dalai Lama. I mean, I've never met him.
1: He seems very self-effacing and... Um very funny and down to earth and even though everybody makes a great big fuss about him it doesn't seem to go to his head you feel like he's the kind of guy you could sit and have tea with and just have a nice chat and you wouldn't feel intimidated he'd feel like your best friend as soon as you met him
0: yeah yeah i agree i like his very simple natural sense of humor the other person obviously recently deceased but that, that i have deep deep reverence for is uh not han and he's very similar in that way I mean, I've never been around him, but seems so approachable. Vulnerable, human, honest, and a very potent transmitter of truth, of the Dharma.
1: Yeah, exactly. You were asking about teachers that I liked a lot. Dipping into Christianity for a moment, I really liked Father Thomas Keating. I got to interview him before he died, obviously. And um, Richard Rohr is really cool, down in uh, Albuquerque. And the people associated with him, like Cynthia Bourgeau and Jim Finley, and all. Um, there's a whole crop of these very open-minded spiritual folks or Christian folks. But one of the um, criteria for BatGap is that we're not just trying to interview the most famous people who are going to result in the greatest number of views on YouTube or something like that. In fact, the the tagline for BatGap is conversations with ordinary spiritually awakening people. So we're perfectly happy to find some housewife who nobody has ever heard of but who's had some kind of awakening and is an interesting person to talk to.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Shifting gears a bit, I'm curious about your, your view or your instinct on – I don't know if it's a dichotomy, but there are some people I would say that are deeply realized, that are awake beings that don't really have an interest in describing anything from a like a, specifically a spiritual standpoint or from spirit standpoint or devotional. So people that come to mind are like Gary Weber. Pretty much a scientist. He thinks in terms of scientific, you know, the default mode network and so forth. Maybe John Sherman, actually. Not necessarily scientific, but he kind of strips his message of spiritual terminology. Is he have the guy who defense? had
1: been in prison and everything and then he... Yeah, yeah he died recently. And Gary Weber, he's a scientific guy, but he definitely had a radical experience, which he talks about all the time, which is he was doing an asana one day, standing on his shoulders or something, and all of a sudden, he stopped thinking, and he hasn't had a thought since. So he says, I pressed him on that a lot, because I said, if you're talking to me, you're having thoughts, (laughs) because (laughs) thoughts precede words or actions, but you just mean your your mind isn't full of chatter.
0: Yeah, so I guess my question is not really about their authenticity, because... Certainly with Gary and, and John, I mean, the authenticity to me is clear, but do you have any sense that it, that it matters? Does it matter if we use spiritual terminology to talk about this awakening process, whether we do or don't? Is there a disadvantage or an advantage either way, or do you have a sense of that at all?
1: I think we all have different roles to play. Well, some person might be, a, let's say Yo-Yo Ma was spiritually awake. I, I, I don't think he is, or who knows, but his role is a cellist. And he doesn't have to use spiritual terminology to do anything. He just plays this cello and everybody benefits from it. So I don't think that there's a necessary correlation between having a spiritual awakening and hanging out a shingle uh, of being a spiritual teacher or using spiritual terminology. You could be a a janitor or something and just being kind to people and doing your job as a janitor and... uh, you might not be pontificating about anything, but you've got this amazing, beautiful inner inner life.
0: Yeah, and I've met I've met people who are exactly that. Just yeah, have no interest whatsoever in having a public image, and yet they're liberated. I mean, they're, they're they radiate it—love and, and yeah. compassion and presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. In
1: fact, I have a friend named Harry Alto, who is a another person that I think um, one of, that has impressed me a lot. I've known him for a long time since because he used to be in the TM movement, or maybe still is. It took me like five or eight years to talk him into coming on that Gap because he just didn't want to have a public profile. And he, uh, but he has a very profound level of, of inner realization and has had since he was a child, and it's been progressing ever since. And then he finally realized he kind of liked talking about it and enjoyed talking to people and everything. But, um, you know, again, we all have different roles to play, and, and not all of us are meant to be teachers, in fact, there's this phenomenon in India that they call babbling saints. There might be someone who is really awakened, but you know, completely incompetent to explain it or express it. And if he tries to, it's just gibberish.
0: <laughs> that was probably me for many years after awakening. <laughs> I'm sure it would have happened if I had tried. So you would interview people, channelers, people who have or describe sort of Sidhi type abilities, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like mediums maybe, or things like that sometimes. Mediums, yeah, mediums, channelers, uh, maybe people who do astral projection and these sorts of things. What is your sense of that? Is it, is it something that is, is we should investigate if we're interested in, in awakening spirituality and so forth? Should we not? Um, or is it, is it something that chooses you? I guess just in general, what is your feel of it? How accessible is that kind of stuff?
1: Most of the people I've interviewed in that realm didn't seek out those abilities. They just started to happen to them. There's this lady named Suzanne Geisman who's a, a medium, and she was actually the main assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. military. She was in the last plane in the sky after 9-11 because she was flying over to Europe with the head of the Joint Chiefs, and they had to turn around and come back you know when 9-11 happened. Anyway, she just kind of out of the blue started having these psychic or medium-type experiences where she was clearly communicating with someone who had deceased. And now it's her main focus. And she does some kind of channeling thing also. Personally, I I don't have any attraction to developing it myself. But the reason I cover those kinds of topics, and also near-death experiences are very interesting, and out-of-body experiences that often accompany near-death experiences... I think it gives people a greater sense of the the landscape of the universe or the different realms that exist in creation because it's not just this gross realm that we ordinarily perceive and the transcendent that we might awaken to if we have an awakening. There's a lot of stuff in between, and I suppose you could get hung up there if you put undue emphasis on it but you are probably going to encounter it to some degree or another as you progress, and to shut yourself down and refuse to believe that it even exists is probably not going to be helpful. And it's a little bit delicate dance, but you know, without becoming overly obsessed with it, it's good to sort of be aware of that. At least I find I find it interesting to understand the me- those subtler mechanics of creation, to be open to the possibility, for instance, of there being celestial beings like angels or you know devas and those kinds of words, and, which have something to do with the way our lives are lived. They might be interacting with us, even if we don't realize it, and which might have something to do with the way the creation itself is conducted. There could be impulses of intelligence that help to govern the, the creation. Because as I see it, the creation, I mean, if I really wanted to take it to its ultimate view, it's all God. There's nothing else. God meaning an infinite ocean of intelligence, creativity, energy that's interacting with itself and giving rise to the appearance of separate beings and separate objects and stars and planets and galaxies and all that. But it's really all contained within the wholeness of God, Saguna Brahman, as Vedanta calls it. I'm getting a little bit carried away with this answer, but anyway, that's Great. what came out of my oh, mouth. I love it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, man. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with the vast majority of everything you said, and and also I try not to highlight it when I talk about spirituality and so forth because it can become a distraction. And yet, if you're not open to, if you're not open to the possibility of it, you'll. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have people who going through awakening will contact me and say that does this ever happen where you feel like a being in your room with you, an entity, it's here, I've never felt anything like this, is that okay, is that normal? You know, so, I mean, I get that, I definitely get that from people. And um, a couple other things that are interesting, I I don't talk about my own stuff with this, almost, I will on occasion, I'm not totally avoidant of talking about it, but often when people ask, I I sense where they're asking from is more just a distraction than anything, But, but I will occasionally mention it, and I mean, I've had visions of things happening in a very, very specific way. And then it happens the next day, like major events. And it doesn't happen frequently, but I've definitely had it to where it's completely undeniable. It's, it was like very specific incidents and people and situations. But I personally don't worry too much about it. I don't try to look for it. And I don't feel like I can do it on command at all. It's nothing like that. But when you have access to unbound consciousness, you have access to a whole hell of a lot, including the, the history of human suffering <laughs> and everything that goes along with it. So you can find yourself in some very, very interesting places with this. And it's I think it's important to, to at least be aware of that as possible. Yeah. And as you implied, there's the whole new age
1: wing of of all this where it gets very woo-woo and people are just totally obsessed with all kinds of stuff. And I think very often they end up indulging in flights of fantasy and they're not really cutting to the quick of what's important. But on the other hand, we don't have to be black and white about it and we we can go for the highest first if we want to phrase it that way, but also enjoy some of the scenery that we're bound to encounter along the way. Another thing a little bit along these themes is the idea of everything being this sort of vast, intelligently orchestrated play and display. In my own life, I find it increasingly fascinating that as events unfold, they seem to be scripted in a way by some intelligence much more wise than me you know something'll happen or someone will come into my life and I'll think well this is interesting I wonder where this is going and I kind of feel like I'm in a, a play written by a master playwright and as a character in that play I have a certain amount of volition and improvisational authority I can kind of move it this way and that but the larger picture of as life unfolds often exceeds my expectations and I've learned to trust it and um you know it's brought me blessings that wouldn't have come along if I had been the one to decide what was supposed to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. The intelligence, the word intelligence in, in what we're talking about, I find to be really heavily weighted and triggering for some people. It's not for me at all. But what I think is interesting about it, and I think the discernment is, there is an egoic-based idea about God or intelligence that that does sort of project the human image into some belief about a male archetype yeah they or anthropomorphize or it but that's not what we're talking about no we're mean? not there's are not different. talking about
1: some big guy in the sky with a beard you yeah. know, smiting us with lightning bolts or whatever it's we're talking about an unbounded ocean of of yeah. consciousness in motion yep. <laughs>
0: yeah and to me the the entry point to that or like the distinction is this kind of intelligence that we're talking about is is a is a sort of reverence and a sublimity. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it's a sublime experience to realize there's something so far beyond you. Uh, it's a vulnerable place to be as well, and you have to go in surrendered, but when you do, if you're willing to and able to, you're kind of in awe of it. It's a very awe-inspiring knowing, and it's not an intellectual knowing. It's not a human structure of, of the way we think we are knowing. It's, it's just beyond all of that. It's beyond all categories of the way our minds can can know or apprehend anything, including perception. And that's undeniable in my experience.
1: That's very nice. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a, definitely a devotional aspect comes into it because you just feel like there's some kind of divine will that you can become more and more attuned to that really has your best interests in mind, and you just learn to trust it. But it's not a uh, drill sergeant. You still have your freedom to align with it or... Choose otherwise, if you wish. <laughs> Aligning with it may not mean only one possible course of action. There's all kinds of possibilities. It's like, you know, that nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. The stream is doing most of the carrying of our canoe. And all we really have to do is sit in it and ride along, but you kind of have to use your oar a little bit, otherwise you might drift off and get stuck in the bulrushes or hit some rocks or something so we you know we gently gently down the stream, we gently you know, guide the boat a little bit this way and that, make course corrections make use our discernment and our discrimination to make sure we're staying in alignment with the current of the stream uh and uh not certainly not trying to row in the other direction, but you know, being careful to stay
0: aligned. <laughs> yeah, right. And I love how gently is spoken one time, but merrily, 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 four times. And so to approach it with a, with a large measure of reverence, uh, enjoyment, um, trust, actually, trust. If, if I can almost break this whole thing down into a, simp- a simple thing that would be trust life, like really trust, trust your instinct but be willing to take your instinct down beyond your beliefs and conceptions and uh, all of it, you know, and there, there, it is merrily, merrily, merrily. (laughs) And there is a dreamy quality to it as well.
1: (laughs) It is. I mean, the dream part is sort of like, there's a lot more to life than you realize just as, you know, there's a lot more to life than what you're experiencing when you're having a dream at night. And, you know, so I mean, and this trustee, I mean, the way we're talking right now might sound kind of glib or insensitive to somebody who's really having a rough time of it, homeless or being abused by someone or any such thing. So we're not oblivious to those situations and something should be done with, to the, about them. And I, I think spirituality in a more large scale society level way could help to ameliorate a lot of those problems. In my opinion, things like economic inequity and environmental degradation and wars and all the all the terrible problems that beset humanity are symptomatic of the vast majority of people failing to develop the kind of thing we've been discussing here, to fail, failing to unfold the full potential which exists within each of us. And um, one of my primary motivations since I first became a, a meditation teacher it was to make a contribution to helping to raise consciousness in the world um, in in part because that would, I hoped, help to, you know, diminish these problems. Yeah. And I, I still believe that.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that leads me to this, this question you may have had before or you may not, I don't know. But if you look back over the last 13 years or even beyond when you were doing interviews and so forth, do you get the sense that there's a a global movement toward awakening toward and or is it accelerating and what what plays into that what do you think has helped that along
1: i think there is and other people seem to think there is and others could argue that there isn't but you know they say a rising tide lifts all boats and i think the tide is rising there's some kind of shift happening in world consciousness collective consciousness and it's making it more and more conducive to awakening so more and more people are awakening. It's almost like you could think that 2,000 years ago or whatever, the Buddha, for instance, had to be kind of a superman to pierce through the membrane of ignorance that existed in the world at that time. But these days, the membrane has been thinned a lot by all the people. Or maybe it's just the trends of time, yugas or something. We seem to be in a phase where awakening is, or, or world consciousness is waking up, and I think it has to, considering the fact that we could really do ourselves in if it doesn't, um, you know, with climate change or nuclear war or, you know, disease or whatever, any number of things could do us in. So, you know, perhaps it's even if, if we're speaking of some kind of cosmic intelligence orchestrating things, perhaps this awakening is a response to the circumstances that humans have created on this Earth, which could be catastrophic. Personally, I think if I didn't recognize this, I might feel pessimistic just watching the news and seeing what's going on. I may think, how's every all these problems going to get solved? But I do think that something is happening. And that's why I have been doing what I've been doing. I just want to be a, a participant in that.
0: Yeah, I feel you. I agree. In the relative sense, I can't know for sure or anything like that. But the, it certainly feels that way. And It's very interesting. I remember learning in undergrad, like a religion course, taught by this professor from Harvard Divinity School. She was a fascinating professor. She was an expert in Taoism, of all things. But I remember her saying, you know, that there was this idea that there's an actual shift that happened around the time of Buddha, 2,500 years ago. You know, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tse, Plato, Aristotle, and then a few hundred years later, Christ. I almost wonder if that was the initial injection into the human race, and it took us a couple thousand years for that to really start to flower and so forth. Who knows? Maybe that's just a nice story. But there is certainly an acceleration now, and I think largely the internet has really facilitated it. Strangely enough, it has. A thousand years ago, you'd have to risk your life to travel from monastery to monastery just on the rumor of a spiritual enlightened spiritual master and then be disappointed and Go do another one and another one. And you can get online now and turn on YouTube and find realized people who, who can show you how to wake up right now, how to dig into your own identity structures right now. It's a truly amazing, action. I think it's it's quite inspiring. And the thing that I think really puts it together for me is I remember distinctly at the end of a session that I did as in one week retreat. For whatever reason, this one, there's always suffering in Sashin. There's always a lot of inner turmoil and physical pain and stuff, but everyone could feel it in this one. There was so much suffering going on in all the people around us and, and I think some external circumstances in the world. And on the last day of my, my teacher's Tay Show, his last talk, I remember him saying something that really moved me. And he said, you know, the more you do this, the more sensitive you become and the more open you become to the, sen- the, the suffering of the world. You can't ignore it. Um, and he said, and it feels a lot of times it will feel like you're in an ocean of suffering. You're just adrift in an ocean of human suffering if you just open your eyes and look around what's going on in the world. And he said, I just want you to know that when you came this week and you voluntarily, voluntarily put yourself in this position to not only feel all that suffering, to feel your own suffering and to still keep going on and still digging in and inquiring and do, you know doing whatever you're doing. Um, he said it matters. It really does matter. And it does make a difference. You may never know that difference. You may never actually see it, even in this lifetime. But I want you to know it does, and that's why we do this. Um, and I, I believe in that, and I believe in just, just going to the depths um, uh, of identity and beyond. Uh, and let the cards fall where they may. Have some trust in this intelligence we're talking about, but you will be pleasantly surprised. Anyone will. It does give me some faith, <laughs> but we are, we're facing monumental challenges, of course. There's a
1: verse in the Gita with regard to individual practice. It says, um, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Even a little of this Dharma removes great fear. And um, that was my experience from day one. Even a little bit of it made a big difference. And then over the years, I, I've, it's kind of like you, it's like putting money in a bank account or something, just doing spiritual practice. It builds up and it builds up, and it's such a worthwhile thing to do, and it really pays off. And it doesn't preclude doing other things in life, having a family, having a job, playing tennis, whatever you like to do, but it's just one thing you can add to your life, which tends to enhance everything else.
0: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So a few last questions. I'm curious how you would respond to this. I try to gauge this towards someone who's a beginner. You know, these these any video I do is just in case someone's the first time they've seen this sort of topic, or, or or it's the first time that it's, it's it's kind of felt deep for them, or you know something salient's coming up. Do you have any suggestions as far as what kind of books, like maybe a small handful of books or passages that you think are particularly salient or potent in terms of spirituality?
1: Ah, well, one thing people could do is they could, well, in terms of what I have had to offer, they could go to batgap.com and they could look under the categorical index page and they could look at the different categories of interviews and people I've interviewed. And then they could click on one and go to that page and watch a little bit of the interview. And if the person interests them, I usually have some of their books listed there. And we also have a recommended books section on BatGap under resources, I think it is, that this lovely woman in Australia put together and it collects recommendations. We have a Facebook group with BatGap that has almost 17,000 members and she put out a call for book recommendations and people sent in all kinds of stuff and she organized them all. So those are in all kinds of categories, books that have inspired people on their spiritual path. I don't think there's any one book, but you have to sort of go with what catches your interest. A lot of people love Ramana Maharshi, and his teachings are very pithy and simple, and you can derive a lot of inspiration just from a little bit of reading. It might be a little tricky understanding what exactly he is saying in terms of meditating on the heart or on the sense of I am and all. You might need some meditation practice instruction to really get something that works for you. But, you know, a lot of people resort to him. Personally, I read a book a week nearly, or sometimes a couple of them, in preparation for interviews, and I really enjoy most of them. I turn them into audiobooks, and I listen while I'm hiking in the woods every day. That way I get my exercise at the same time. Do you
0: remember any of those books surprising you or being particularly transformative when you were just casually reading it for an interview? You have I... gone through so much material, yeah.
1: Yeah, some of them are real challenging to me. Like there's this guy named Donald Hoffman who's a scientist. I spent all week or so hiking in the, in the local park listening to his talks, or maybe it was a, his book that I was listening to. And I felt like my brain was going to explode because I really had to kind of stretch to understand exactly what he was saying. But by the, by the end of the week, I felt like I got it and I had a, a really good interview with him. So it really stretches me. When you're in high school, you probably did this in high school biology class or maybe college being, you you watch these little videos of amoebas or maybe you look at them under a microscope and the amoebas are sort of moving along and they detect a speck of food and they kind of engulf the speck of food and incorporate it and then they keep moving and find another speck of food. So that's kind of the way I am. Every week I have a new interview and I get to... Digest a new chunk of you know wisdom from somebody, and I, I love just delving into their world and kind of mind melding with them as best I can, and then having a conversation with them. I just find it incredibly enriching. I guess that points to a broader principle, which is that that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. If you spend your spare time playing video games or something that'll have one effect, but if you're really interested in the kind of things that you and I are talking about here, if you spend as much time as you can putting your attention on this kind of thing, both in terms of practice and in terms of knowledge you might find in books or YouTubes or or whatever, that will have an influence. It will definitely accelerate your progress, which brings in one other point, which is I think that both knowledge and experience are important, one without the other. Is lopsided. It's like trying to walk on one leg. A spiritual practice which genuinely results in a deeper experience is great and important. And also, you need to understand more and more and more as you go along to supplement or counterbalance. Understanding or knowledge can be both inspiring, in that it can give you a vision of possibilities, but it can also be clarifying. Purifying, there's a verse in the Gita which says there's nothing so purifying as knowledge. And ultimately it can lead to the final realization when the, the finest level of intellect discerns between the absolute and relative and you know you can sort of step into into the self. Anyway, those two things, if you keep the kettle simmering with both experience and knowledge and keep them both enlivening as you go along, hmm. it'll it'll be advantageous.
0: Yeah, I actually think that's a really good the, the beginning part of your answer as far as going to your library and finding a topic you're interested in, watching the video, and if you resonate with that person, read their book. I had never even thought of that approach as simple as it is. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, actually. your interview.
1: Yeah. I'm sure I listed your book on your interview page. So if a person were to watch that, then they'll see your book listed on the page. They can go to Amazon or whatever and get it. You know, because I mean, it's an investment of time to read a book, and you could spend the rest of your life. I mean, you can spend the next couple of years just watching all my interviews and the rest of your life reading all the books everybody has written. So you have to winnow it down a little bit. Exactly. (laughs) But if someone doesn't interest you, you're probably not going to like their book either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, read the people that you like. Yeah. Mm Shanti has some good books that are not Mm -hmm. long and that are,
0: you know, quite edifying. He has incredible books, yeah. I I I love Emptiness Dancing. I love um, Resurrecting Jesus. I was actually a little hesitant to read it for some reason. I just well, it didn't didn't seem interesting, but I was blown away by it. So yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. He and uh, Francis Bennett and I had a nice conversation about that book, Resurrecting Jesus, mm. um, which people can find on BatGap. Cool.
0: Yeah. All right. So here's one last question: If you were able to, it's a kind of it's kind of a two part question, but the, the parts relate. And so if you were able to go back in time, and the first time Rick in the car. I don't know if he was on acid or not taking it No, not while I was driving the car, although I did that too. But at that time, I wasn't. When you heard the word enlightenment and Uh something resonated with you, and the second part of the question is, anyone who's listening to this and and something resonates about that, about that possibility for them, what general advice would you give that person? And or the person who says, I've been suffering my whole life, and now I sense there's some way to actually address that. What general kind of guidance might you give that person?
1: Well, there's a Rumi quote, which I just found the other day. I'm going to pull it up. It'll only take me a second. Oh, yeah, take your time. He said, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears. Got that? As you start to walk on the way, the way appears. So, I mean, there was a Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, where Harrison Ford had to cross this canyon and there was no bridge there or something. And as, but as he took each step, the bridge materialized and he was able to walk across the canyon. It's kind of like that. There's a great quote from Goethe. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now.
0: Wow, that is How do you like powerful. That? Yeah. Isn't that
1: great? And so that applies certainly to the spiritual path, I think. Just take a step, yeah. and then take another step. And one thing will lead to the next. And, and the, the path will be different for everybody to some extent, uh, but it will, it will appear before you, like Harrison Ford's bridge, or... What Goethe says, all kinds of providence will come to your aid if you take the initiative. There's some gurus in India say, take one step towards me and I'll take a thousand steps toward you. And I think we could apply that to the divine or God or whatever if we wanted. it
0: I find that to be exactly true. It really is like, I think sort of that first place people find themselves with this is there's so much hesitancy and so much doubt mass. But when they start to just take a step, there's something you know. They, whether it's inquiry, whether it's learning to meditate, whether it's going to a retreat on a leap of faith or something, uh, things start changing. Things things you can things you can and things you cannot perceive start changing. Yeah, and you don't want to be a dilettante flipping
1: about from this to that. You have to commit yourself to things to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but you also don't want to be pigheaded about it if. You know, doing something, and you've been doing it for a year, and nothing seems to be happening. Yeah. Maybe it's the wrong thing for you. You know, mm-hmm. look around. Yeah. Be open to what what other guidance might be coming your way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's so, somewhat of a dance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, beautiful. Well, I think it's been a great conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm certain people are going to get a lot out of this. Um, I appreciate you agreeing to do it. I know you've, oh, you've yeah. done I several it. interviews before, but it's it was really great to and just to catch up.
1: Yeah, thanks, Angelo. Really appreciate it. And uh, remember, if I ever miss a connection at the Denver airport, you're going to be hearing from me.
0: You can always get you can always give me a call. I actually live like less than ten minutes from the airport. So. I know you do. I and looked I up have, your house one customers. time when I was going to interview, you, and I said, "Wow, the
1: airport's right there. This is this is good to know in case I ever miss a connection or something."
0: Yeah, absolutely. not that I travel
1: much these days, but you know what I mean. It'd be fun to visit you sometime.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're welcome to. Yeah,
1: add you to that list I told you about. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe maybe you could just retire and just travel.
1: <laughs> I could if I wanted to. I don't know, yeah. but that's kind of exhausting. I, I, you know, I, I get a lot more done sitting in one place than I would bopping around the world.
0: Yeah, I, I'm the same way, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again, and I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.